Let's pray together. Father, just we ask this morning that the Spirit would open our ears again and that the Spirit would speak, that these truths, Lord, would be precious to us and transformative and that we'd give the glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever felt like you missed out on something, something that other people seem to be enjoying a great deal, but you missed out on it because you simply couldn't do it? I remember being in junior high and my buddies talking about going squirrel hunting after school down by the river. And if you can imagine late, uh, you know, late September, beautiful sunny day, um, it sounded like heaven to go squirrel hunting with my friends down by the river. But I had a standing unalterable um, date with 50 dairy cows every single day and there was no way in the world I was going squirrel hunting. And, uh, and so I could just sort of watch from a distance as they talked about it and shared stories the next day of, of how well they'd done. Um, here's another example. Maybe you remember the uh, auto stereograms. Those are those, those pictures that look like just patterns of colors, but uh, if you looked at them just right, you saw wonderful 3D images, right? inside the picture. Uh, they were really, really cool if you could see it. And I remember when those things first came out, I just couldn't see it. And other people would be talking about the dolphins they saw or the castles or whatever it is and laughing and, and uh, thoroughly enjoying the experience. And, and I just would stare. I, I, I thought the trick was don't blink. So you just, just look at it until your eyes got blurry, watery, and, and it, it just didn't work. Um, I wasn't able to experience their joy until I finally learned you got to look through the picture. And then it, it clicked. Well, have you ever had that, uh, an experience like that when it comes to people talking about their, their Christian life? Maybe they're, they're talking about their conversion experience and how um, they were just flooded with the joy of the Lord and, they, and, and a deep sense that they were, they were free from their bondage and, and free from their guilt and the love of God was just poured out over them and they were, they were weeping and they experienced a a sudden passion for the Bible and a deep love for Christ and, and, a, and a wonderful joy in the Holy Spirit. And you're listening to them talking about it and you're wondering, they just seem to have something that, something more than what I have. They seem to have a deeper joy, a, a fuller assurance, a greater intimacy with God, greater confidence and, and peace in their faith. I think many of us have had that experience, and the question I want to ask this morning was, how do you then, how do you get at that? How do you, how do you go into that experience? What's the key? What do you need to see in order to experience, in truth, the love of God and the joy and the peace that comes from believing? And I believe one of the most essential keys is to grasp in truth, to grasp the sheer grace of God, the grace of the gospel. Grace is what makes the gospel good news, you see. Grace is what makes salvation an experience of being loved because grace is the kindness of God manifested in the most astonishing way as he gives up his own son in our place and offers all the blessings of God to us freely by grace in Jesus. When you, 
when you get, get a hold of that, when the incredible grace of God makes sense to you, and, and you're, or you, at least you see it, it, so that it begins to ruin your pride and, and fill you with thankfulness and, and worship, well, then you're, then you're going to enter into the experience of these other people. Their story is going to be your story. And so this morning, as we wrap up chapter 4, uh, we're going to take a look at just the wonder of the grace of God. Paul, in, in the first verses, has shown that the blessings of God come by faith alone. And now he continues to show that salvation must be by faith so that it can be by grace alone. And so we'll be looking at that concept the grace, the salvation by grace alone. I want you to, uh, and, and Paul's going to point out how faith is essential to this. So we're going to start, the first point is the necessity of faith, and then the benefit of faith, and then the third will just be the application. The necessity of faith, and then the benefit of faith, and then Paul will say, and this is for you. So let's begin verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. God made promises to Abraham back in the book of Genesis, made several significant promises, promises like uh, that he would have uh, a great number of descendants, as many as the stars in the heaven and the sand on the shore. And that when Abraham was an old man and his wife was thoroughly barren. God promised Abraham and his descendants a land that would be their possession. Uh, God promised Abraham that through Abraham, God would bless the nations that Abram would be a blessing to the whole world. And, and the point that Paul makes in verse 13 is that those promises did not come through the law, but they came through the righteousness of faith. In other words, um, you could ask the question, on what, on what basis or, or what, were, what was the condition by which those promises would be fulfilled? Was it, was it the condition of obedience or the condition of faith? Would they be fulfilled by what... Abraham did in keeping the law, or would they be fulfilled by what God did in keeping his word? And that's, that's the difference between the two. Is it what Abraham does by keeping the law, or by or what God does by keeping his word? And, and that difference really matters. Paul's going to just pound on that point. Notice what he says in verse 4. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, well, then faith is null and the promise is void. You lose a lot. Faith is null and the promise is void. You see, the law principle and the promise principle are incompatible principles. They're discordant. They, they're conflicting categories. Paul will um, say the same thing in Galatians chapter 3, verse 18, where he says, if the inheritance comes by the law then it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. But if it's by the law, it's not by promise. John Stott says this, law and promise belong to different categories which are incompatible. Something can be given either by law or by promise, but they cannot be in operation simultaneously. Law language, right, you shall demands our obedience. But promise language, I will, demands our faith. What God said to Abraham was not, obey this law and I will bless you, 
but I will bless you, believe my promise. That's a big difference. He doesn't say, obey this law and I will bless you. That's how most people think Christianity works. Keep your nose clean, do the right things, go to church, do whatever you think God requires of you. Do these things and I will bless you. That's how people think Christianity works. That's not Christianity. It's a different, it's a different religion. Christianity is I will bless you, believe my promise. Now, why does Paul say that a reliance on the law makes faith null and the promise void? Let's just unpack that a minute. Why does it make faith null, empty, meaningless? Well, it's very simple. If the inheritance is by keeping the law, uh, then faith is, well, it's just irrelevant. I mean, who cares what you believe? The issue is, have you obeyed? Did you keep the law? You can say, I believe this and I believe that, and well, that's all well and good, and, and, and uh, you know, cheerio to you, but it, it makes no difference. It's utterly irrelevant. The issue, if it's, if it's by the law, the issue is, have you obeyed the law? Regardless of what you believe, have you obeyed the law? And if you've not obeyed the law, well, I'm sorry, the promise is not for you. can't be for you. Because you violated the condition. And so the promise is, uh, faith is no. You see, the faith, law principle and faith principle are contradictory things. Law relies on the condition of our obedience. Faith relies on the condition of God's faithfulness. God made the promise. God said, I will. Will he be faithful? And so if it's by law, well, then faith is utterly irrelevant. You don't need to talk about what you believe. But why does the law principle then, secondly, make the promise void? Well, again, if the inheritance comes through the law, the promise is void because the promise will never be fulfilled, and that's because no one is able to keep the law. What good is a promise when the condition is impossible? It's no good at all. And so Paul will say in verse 15 to those people who are appealing to the law as, as the as their, um, their way of gaining the promise, Paul says, can I just remind you what the law does? Verse 15, the law brings wrath. The law brings condemnation. And it does that for everyone, not just for bad people, for everyone, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The law is not our friend to help us gain the promise. So if salvation is by the law, if the promise comes through the law, no one gets the promise. No one is going to be saved. The promise is null and void. The inheritance will go unclaimed. It's a serious, essential issue. Calvin, John Calvin says this, The sum of the matter is, therefore, that if salvation depends on the observance of the law, the mind will not be able to have any confidence in it, and indeed, all the promises offered to us by God will prove of no effect. We are thus in a lost and deplorable condition if we are sent back to works to find out the cause or the certainty of our salvation. If it's by the law, well, then we are of all men most miserable. It can't work. It won't work ever. No one is going to gain the promise by keeping the law. 
But what the law cannot do, you see, faith accomplishes. Because faith lays hold of what God does. And so secondly, the value or the benefit of faith, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his, that's Abraham's offspring. Not only to the adherents of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Paul just points out the great blessing of the, of the fact that the gospel is, is God's promise to those who believe, that it, that it comes by faith. You see, that way then the promise, it rests the promise on grace. See, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. See, that's, the, that's the question that people are, uh, that, that we ask when we wrestle with doubts and fears and unbelief. We're asking the question, on what does God's promises to me rest? What is, what is the foundation of God's promise? What does it rest on? Right? When, when you're dealing with, with, with doubts and, and fears, that's what it rests on. That's the question. And the answer, of course, is it rests on grace. The promise rests on grace. I love what Calvin says. He says the object of faith is grace. That's a really good insight. The object of faith is grace. He's not denying, obviously, that the object of faith is Jesus. But, but what he wants us to see by that statement is that it's, we need to see Jesus as the grace of God to us. Or Jesus will just be a historical figure. Or Jesus will just be a theological idea. The object of true faith, what you see and what you grasp is grace. The grace of God for you, the sinner. You see, faith is, is this conviction that in spite of all of my sin, in spite of all of my unbelief, in spite of all the things that ought to condemn me, in spite of the reality of the holiness and righteousness of God and the law of God which thunders against me, in spite of all of that, God has said He's willing to save me by grace alone in Jesus alone, and I believe it. I lay hold of the grace of God. What God has promised to do, I am convinced that He is willing and able to do. You see, that is precisely the conviction that enabled Abraham and Sarah to believe the impossible, as Paul points out in verses 18 through 21. Notice what he says, In hope he, Abraham, believed against hope so that he should become the father, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told by God, so shall your offspring be, as many as the stars in the heaven. So you just, I mean, it's a preposterous sort of situation. Here's Abram and Sarah in their old age, um, completely barren, no, no possibility of having children. And God says, Abram, let me tell you something. You're going to have as many descendants as the stars. It would, also, it would almost seem to be mockery if it wasn't God who was saying it. And we read verse 19 that Abraham, hearing this, did not weaken in faith 
when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, being 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of, of Sarah's womb, when he just looked at the facts, he didn't weaken in his faith. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in the faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's faith. That's faith. When God promises Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, Abraham, as I said, is not only childless, he's ancient, and his wife is thoroughly, irrevocably barren. If the years had made one thing painfully and absolutely clear to this couple, it was that uh, the, the irrefutable fact of their barrenness. They would never have children, ever. So how are they able to believe this promise when all the brutal facts of biology and the testimony of all those barren years proved it was impossible? Well, um, they ignored the facts and trusted God. You see, faith is the assurance of what is hoped for and the conviction of things yet unseen. They took, they took the reality, the facts, I suppose, of their circumstances, and then they took what God had said, what God had promised, and this outweighed this. They trusted that God was able, that He was able and willing to do exactly what He had promised, and so, instead of despairing, they grew strong in their faith and gave glory to God, fully convinced. Not just a vague hope, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. You see, friends, we, we might think of Abraham's faith as being extraordinary, but the fact is it's really not extraordinary at all. Abraham's God is extraordinary, and God's promise is extraordinary, and Abraham just trusted it. Abraham and Sarah were willing to set aside the facts of their circumstance. In a sense, if you think of the, austere, the, the autostereogram, um, you've got to look through it, you see. You gotta, you, if you just stare at the patterns, you're never going to see it. You've got to let the patterns sort of um, dissipate and, and, in a sense, look through the picture, and suddenly the image jumps out. Well, Abraham and Sarah were able to look through the circumstances and see the glory of the promise. But not just the glory of the promise. Specifically, they were able to see the glory of the promiser. God was in the circumstances. And God had spoken, and God is able, and God will do. And they were fully convinced of it. They could see it with the eyes of faith. And once they could see it, they couldn't unsee it. Calvin says this, Let us also remember that the condition of, of us all is the same as that of Abraham. All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. He promises immortality. We are surrounded by mortality and corruption. He declares that He counts us just. We are covered with sins. What then is to be done? We must with closed eyes pass by ourselves and all things connected with us that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. God is true. You see, friends, we are, like Abraham and Sarah, able to have profound 
certainty and assurance of God's promises precisely because the condition of those promises has nothing to do with us but all to do with the grace of God and the word of God. God has said, I will. The promise rests on grace that it may be guaranteed to all his offspring. Guaranteed to all his offspring. You see, the benefit of faith is that it provides incontestable assurance. If the promise is based on law-keeping, well, then the promise is worthless. There's only one way that it can be guaranteed, and that is if it is not based on what we do, but on what God has spoken and what God has done. And friends, this is a critical issue for assurance. One of the things that strikes me in uh, Dutch reform circles, or just let me just say reform circles, is is how often we lack assurance. People who can tell you tulip, right, and and believe in the doctrines of grace, and yet lack assurance. And that's, the only answer for that is we're not connecting the dots. You see, if, if we're lacking assurance, and if you would ask someone lacking assurance, if you ask yourself, do I really doubt that God is able? No one would, would say that that is true. No one would say, yes, actually, I, I don't think God has the power to save me. No one believes that. If you ask, is he willing? That's where the questions come. And why would he not be willing? Well, look at me. I'm stuck in my sin. I've lived a Years of just unbelief and serving myself and my pride and my lust and my greed and my apathy, whatever, just rises up against me. And so I have doubts. And then I look at all the trouble that my life is in and and the fruits of of my sin on other people. I see weakness and brokenness because of me. And and it's just hard to believe that God would be willing to save me. But you see, friends, all of those fears and all of those questions, all of those doubts, they all get answered right here. Because you see, that's looking to law-keeping. If God has promised, and if the condition is rooted in what God has said He's willing to do, then the promise is bulletproof. It's bulletproof. It's immutable. It's unshakable. It's It's like God Himself. God cannot change. His Word cannot change. And so we have grounds for unshakable assurance. There is no reason a Christian should, could, cannot have unshakable assurance. An assurance that, that empowers your life, transforms you. Because your, the assurance must be based on God's promise. Is he able? Yeah. Is he willing? Absolutely. Do you need evidence? He sent his son. It's such an essential lesson. There's so many sincere believers, true children of God, who lack profound assurance because we've not grasped this principle. And maybe that's you this morning. You believe in Jesus? You really do. You you want to live a life that's glorifying to God, but but you see the reality of your sin. You see the fickleness of your heart. You're still afraid to die because, because you just haven't maybe quite yet connected the dots. Hanging over the head of your Christian life is this cloud of uncertainty. You see the trials that you're in and you, and you sense that you, you, you think maybe God is, is punishing me after all. Maybe Jesus didn't pay it all. Well, if you're living under that cloud of uncertainty, that cloud of fear and doubt, this text is meant to remove the cloud. 
Because the promise does not rest on what you do. It rests on what God has promised and what God has done. Does not rest on our ability, but on Christ's accomplishment on the cross. Doesn't rest on our performance. It rests on his promise and his grace. God has promised you, every sinner here, an inheritance in Jesus by simple, sheer grace received by faith. And thus the inheritance is guaranteed to all who believe. Christian Scheidt, author of 1742, wrote a hymn we have in our hymn book. By grace I am an heir of heaven. Why doubt this, O my trembling heart? If what the scriptures promise clearly is true and firm in every part, which it is, then this also must be truth divine. By grace, the crown of life is mine. You can have, friends, today, absolute conviction, certainty, assurance. As you just trust that God is able and God is willing. And it doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, and that's where Paul says next that uh, the, the doctrine of salvation by faith makes the promise available to all. Jews and Gentiles alike. Abraham is the father of all who believe, right? He, he's the father of us all, Abraham points out. Those who are under the law, the Jews, but also those who have faith. And, and Paul's not saying the Jews are saved one way and, and, and Gentiles another, but, but that by, by faith, Abraham is the father of us all, the father of, of the nations. You see, Paul's passion was to preach, preach Christ to sinners of every stripe, every tongue, tribe, nation, didn't, didn't, didn't matter to him. He, he, he loved to go to the Gentiles where he was sent. And he loved specifically, you see, that God's, uh, God had not abrogated his promise to, to Abraham, but had fulfilled them in the gospel going to the Gentiles. You see, because the Jews were convinced that Paul's message was a violation of the Old Testament, their scripture. And the reason it was a violation is because they read their Bible and it said God made a covenant with Abraham and his descendants, period, full stop. Abraham and his descendants. Just read the text, Paul. Doesn't say Hittites, doesn't say Amorites, doesn't say Greeks, doesn't say Romans. It's not who it's with. It's with Abraham and his descendants, and they're correct. See, they were right. God's covenant was with Abraham and his descendants. The critical question is, who are Abraham's descendants? Who are the descendants? And, and Paul's point is that since Abraham was from the beginning made righteous by faith, then the actual bona fide descendants of Abraham are those who, like Abraham, have faith and who are made righteous by faith. Galatians 3, 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see, the gospel is this glorious good news that sinners of every tribe and tongue and nation of every background, every personal history or, or, or family wreckage, doesn't matter. 
You are welcomed into Abraham's family and you are promised Abraham's inheritance as you embrace Abraham's faith. As you lay hold of the promise of God that he is willing to make you righteous by faith. And friends, that's good news for us because we're the Gentiles. We're the Gentiles. And we've been invited in. And Paul makes that final application here then, our third point. Notice verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours. Ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I love the way Paul does this. He's not, you see, he's not just talking theology and, and theory, hypotheticals, not just arguing some finer points. He's explaining the gospel, and then, and then he, he just points to his readers and says, listen, this is for you. It's not just for Abraham. When God says to Abraham that his faith is counted as righteousness, it wasn't just for him. It's for you. God promised to, give, to make you righteous by faith to impute the righteousness of Christ to your account and and to make you an heir of all the promises of of everlasting life and and a city that is yet to come. I mean, the the, the New Testament writers understood that the promise of land wasn't just this piece of real estate in the Middle East, that Abraham was looking for something with foundations whose builder and maker is God. He was looking for a, a homeland. Are you looking for a homeland? Does your heart yearn for... A new heaven and earth where things are as they ought to be and where Christ is seen and, and worshipped in all of his perfection and, and with perfection? Well, that's the inheritance. And, and Paul says it, it's for us who believe. Us, us who believe what? Us who believe in not just God, but in the God who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, that God. The God who raised from the dead his own son, who who he delivered up for our trespasses and he raised up for our justification. You see, the God that we're called to believe in is the God who has accomplished our salvation in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The God who has done the work and on the basis of that work says, I shall, I will, to those who believe. Oh, there's lots of people who believe in God. There are a lot of uh, professing Christians who believe in God. The question is, do you believe in this God? Do you believe in this God? The God who instead of making you pay for your sins, made Jesus pay and delivered up his own son so that rather than condemning us, he could condemn him and pardon us. The God who loved you so much that while you were yet sinners and are sinners still in so many ways, that God in love, delivered up. It's very profound language. Delivered up, said, here, here's my son. Take him. Offered for you on a cross, bearing all the guilt and shame of your sin. And in this Jesus, then, God puts him to death and then raises him, his, him to life so that we can be justified. So that God can say in just justly say you are righteous since Christ bore the penalty and imputed the obedience. Isn't it a wonderful gospel? I mean it's just an incredible gospel. 
The question is, do we understand it's for us? And do we, are we willing to lay hold of it, you see? Willing to lay hold of all that God has accomplished and all that God has promised and willing to look past then our doubts and past the reasons for our fear and simply lay hold of the truth. This is what God has said and He is a God of grace and a God of faithfulness. And I'm convinced. I'm convinced. Fully convinced that He's a God for me. We're going to sing in a minute, Your Grace that reaches far and wide to every tribe and nation has taught my heart to enter in the joy of thy salvation. Friends, this morning, God desires your joy in his salvation. As you you receive it as a gift of grace and grace and grace alone, from the first moment till the moment you are glorified, all of grace, all to his glory, and all for our joy. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we want to be like Abraham and believe, Lord, with that beautiful faith that lays hold of your word and trusts your grace and receives your promise as the cert- our certain future, our destiny. It must be so because God has spoken. Father, forgive us for our doubts and our fears. Forgive us for our unbelief. We, oh God, want to be people who glorify God by giving, uh, Lord, by being fully convinced that you are able and willing to do what you have promised to us, sinners all. And yet, oh God, made heirs of the world, heirs of everlasting life, all because of your grace to us in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that that we would experience this truth in our heart and it would drive away doubt and drive away fear. If God be for us, who can be against us? If God has begun a work, he promises to complete it. And that all of our sin and unbelief can is no match for the grace and power of God in Jesus Christ, his son. Oh, Father, give the Holy Spirit that assurance would be ours um, in truth unfailing, beautiful assurance that provides joy and peace in believing. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.
God to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father be with you all till Christ come again. Amen. Good morning, boys and girls. Come on up to the front. We get to keep on singing while the adults make their way to the foyer and outside. Boys and girls get their snacks after their, in their Sunday school classrooms. And we're going to start out with a song. Ready, Mr. Tunis? It's Hebrews 12.1. Let us run the race marked out for us. Oh, 
And now we're going to sing, You Alone Can Rescue. Jesus is the only one, and we heard about that this morning. Let's sing, Who, O Lord, Could Save Themselves. time to sing the Fruit of the Spirit song. Do you think we could do boys against the girls today? I need some boy leaders. Who wants to come up here and lead? Want to come up with boys? Come on. And tonight, Pastor Van Dyke is preaching on patience. Pretty cool, huh? Okay, we have, do we have any birthdays today? 
No birthdays today. Okay. We're going to sing Cornerstone. My hope is built on nothing less. have time to sing Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so think we can sing that through Jeremiah is there one verse or just or is there two just one Join me in thanking 
our musicians over here. Thank you very much. All right, we get to go to our classes now. Sixth and seventh graders, you may lead the way. Fifth graders.